0: Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, greatness according to God. Greatness according to God. D.L. Moody, an evangelist of time past, once said that you can become too big for God to use, but never too small. And on being a servant, the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if God has called you to be his servant, why on earth would you stoop to be a king? The world has a, I think, a pretty obvious sense of what makes one great, of how one becomes great, and how one stays great. Well, Jesus has been shaping and molding the 12, not to be conformed to the world, but but to be conformed to his likeness, to prepare them for his ministry. And unfortunately, the sad truth is, In the last several chapters of this book, we've seen that the disciples are still too big in their own heads. Like Gideon's army, they need to be whittled down a little bit. We see in today's passage Jesus working to that end as the men take a day of respite on the road to Jerusalem. We can divide these four verses into four points. Wait, 35, 35. Five verses into four points. 30, verse 33 gives us the probing inquiry that the Lord makes. Verse 34, we see the painful impasse that results from the inquiry. Verse 35 gives us the poignant instruction. And in the last two verses, 36 and 37, give us a practical illustration. The inquiry, the impasse, the instruction, and the illustration. Mark writes They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house he began to question them What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. We see in verse 33, as we examine the probing inquiry that the Lord makes, that Jesus has brought the twelve en route to Jerusalem. He brings them to Capernaum. For those of you who've been with us for some time, you know that Capernaum is a place that Jesus and the twelve visited frequently. Several of the disciples were from Capernaum. Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. And this is where Jesus based his ministry for largely the first two years. And he's here for the last time. This is where his ministry began. This is where his public ministry officially is over in Capernaum. And they're here to wrap some things up at home base. They're here to perhaps catch a breath, to say farewells to those that they haven't perhaps seen in a while, And to say farewells to those who have been close to Jesus for the past two years. Mark tells us that they go into the house. This wasn't just any house. The residents and the owners of this house were people who were close to Jesus. These were people that Jesus and the twelve knew intimately. People that they were close to. And there's every reason to believe that this is, in fact, Peter's and Andrew's house, which was identified all the way back in chapter 1, verse 29. And since then, this house has always been referred to as the house, much like the boat, which became a character of its own in chapters 4 through 8. Mark uh, just assumes that his readers know whose house this is, and it would make sense if this was someone's house whom Mark, the Mark's audience knew, such as Peter. So here Jesus is in Capernaum, his his Galilean ministry has concluded where it began and there are some people who are near and dear and close to Jesus that beloved he's not going to see again until after his resurrection. It's time for goodbyes. It's time for farewells. And this reminds me of Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. I don't know anyone who can read that goodbye and not get a little teary-eyed. So I'm sure that there were some sentimental, teary-eyed words. I'm sure there were some hugs. No doubt that the 12 told their family and friends the things that Jesus has been telling them. And there were some important conversations had, but more important than these sentimental words was the conversation that Jesus is about to have with the 12 because of this probing inquiry as to what they were discussing on the way to Capernaum. Luke 9.47 tells us that Jesus already knew. When he he puts, uh, later in the passage, when he puts the child down, Luke tells us that Jesus had already known their thoughts. It's in the, the perfect tense that tells us that his knowing, his reviewing, his analyzing, his assessing what they were thinking, looking at what's going on in their minds. He has completed that analysis. He has reviewed all that he needs to do. He knows precisely what is in their hearts. And it's passages like this that by implication scream and shout the deity of Jesus Christ. No prophet of old could ever read the thoughts of other men. But I want you to notice how he broaches the subject if I knew the sinful thoughts of other people, if I if I could see into their heart, I would gripe and complain. I would I would start a lot of conversations like this. Jesus doesn't do that. He asks a question to get the ball rolling. And those of you who are teachers know that is a fantastic way to teach. That is a that is an excellent and efficient and good way to assess what is it that your students have learned? What is it that your students have grasped? What is it that they haven't grasped based on how they respond to questions? Asking questions forces the other person to provide an answer. So he asks them, what were you discussing along the way? The the word discussing, it's in the imperfect. So again, this idea of again and again and again, they were discussing the entire way as they were walking to Capernaum the entire course of their journey through Galilee for the last day or two, perhaps three days from Caesarea Philippi, they've they've been having this ongoing discussion. And Jesus' probing inquiry leads to the disciples' painful impasse in verse 34. What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. Now, I want to work try a little exercise. I want you to lift your Bibles up and I want you to put your ear right over verse 37. I want to see this. Come on. Besides the snickering of your neighbor, do you hear that? Do you hear that sound of one of, of the disciples eating their own hats? Do you do you hear the sound of men having no leg to stand on? Do you hear the sound of shame? The disciples are caught red-handed. Jesus' question has sucked all the oxygen clear out of the room. Jesus has been busy trying, he's been busy thinking about the coming cross. He's been busy trying to get the disciples, these 12 men, to think about the same thing about the cross, about his coming suffering, about his coming rejection and death and his resurrection. And he's been wanting them to think about how these things must happen. They must happen because it is written that these things will happen. He's been trying to get them to think about why these things must happen. What's at stake if they don't happen? A lot of deep, serious, sober thinking. And all the while, these men have refused to receive and to accept Jesus' words about the cross and the necessity for them to themselves embrace suffering, to deny themselves, to take up their own cross. For the, for the necessity of them to embrace whatever the cost may be in this world, in this life, to associate with Him, to belong to Him, to be, to stand with Him. They've refused to come to the end of themselves, which we see is made painfully evident in verse 29. When they were trying to cast out the demon. When they should have been driven to prayer. When they should have requested the help of the one who had empowered them to do the miracles. The one who was behind the miracles, they did nothing. When they should have recognized that there, this was something they cannot do. They are impotent. They can't do what needs to be done. They did nothing. Actually, what's sad is they did do something. They got caught up in an argument or a discussion with the scribes trying to defend themselves Beloved, talk about defending the indefendable. Talk about trying to defend a lost cause. No doubt these these men were embarrassed by their failure. But what's so sad is you think that they would have at least had the the decency of heart and the spiritual maturity to listen to Jesus' words when he told them that, according to Matthew, it was because of the littleness of their faith. Mark told us it was because of their reluctance to pray. The littleness of their faith is the root of the issue. Their negligence to pray is the fruit of the issue. So th- Those are the two sides of the same coin. They didn't have faith, and so they didn't pray. You would think that they would have at least listened to that. But how sad and how pitiful that after that blunder, after that failure of, immense proportions they get into a heated argument about which one of them is the greatest I mean this would be it is sad it's quite sad now I can theorize how this how this argument began verse 33 tells us that they've had a prolonged argument that this has been a discussion that has been being discussed along the way again would be Anywhere, if they were in a very, very fast pace, it would be a full day. It's probably more like a two- or three-day journey. In verse 34, so verse thirty tells us it was a prolonged argument. Verse 34 tells us uh, that this argument was amongst themselves. And look, it says that they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest that phrase, along with the, with the context of the argument, with the theme of the argument, tells us that this wasn't a discussion that they wanted the master's input on. This is a discussion that they are having behind his back. It was, a, it was an argument on inter-rivalry. This was a close, face-to-face, intimate, heated discussion. Now, have you ever been so close to somebody that you can tell what they had for lunch? You could smell the food on their breath. That's how close they are because they're walking with Jesus. He's perhaps a few steps behind, or in front of him. Uh, we see that in Mark 32 that Jesus is walking on ahead of the group as he's going towards Jerusalem. He's set his face like a flint. He's going to Jerusalem. The disciples are amazed. They're astonished that he is still going. And uh, Mark tells us later that those who were following we're afraid. And so the disciples are trailing behind, partially because they have, uh, and, and I can understand this, they have lost a little bit of the motivation to walk briskly into Jerusalem. They, know, they have a sense of what's coming. But they've lost some motivation. But also, if we trail behind a little bit, we can actually start complaining about each other. I mean, that's what, that's what men do best when they're discouraged and, they, and they're frustrated. We complain. That's what we do best. No, sorry. I just watched that tigger or that movie that Winnie the Pooh, so I've got the best in my that did not that was not intentional. But that's what we do best. Is we complain when we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're fearful, we complain. And so they resort to complaining against one another. And likely, Peter. remember, Peter, James, and John, they had gone up onto the mountain, and they come down to find the nine unable to cast out one little demon. And I'm sure that for the three, their own egos were fanned into a great flame. And, and one of them, probably James or John, or well, no, it could have been Peter, because he has the foot-shaped mouth, if you recall, said something to the effect that, you know, if we were there, you guys wouldn't have had this predicament. If we were there, we would have done it. And then the nine probably made some comeback, uh, a quick comeback about, "Hey, remember that time Peter, you put your foot in your mouth and you re- you rebuked Jesus and he called you Satan? Yeah, maybe not." And that that's how the the argument ball started rolling. And so Jesus, and, and the whole while they're they're riled up and they're now firing shots back and forth, but they're they're doing it real close, like because Jesus is just a few steps ahead and they don't want Jesus. To be aware. So while Jesus is walking ahead, he's lead, leading the way. He's, he's deep in thought over the approaching cross. There they are, the 12. Arguing over who of them was responsible for the impotency of the nine. And who of them, you know, had they been there. Had, had the weakness of the others not been a, a present, which one of them would have been able to pull through. And get the job done. Which one of them is the best? Which one of them is the greatest? And again, probably a two or three day trip. Anybody ever have an argument like that? When they're driving across the states, across the country? It was a long argument. And they knew better to ask Jesus. They knew better than to ask Jesus. Which is made painfully evident by what in verse 34? Their silence. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew that what they were doing wouldn't have been approved by their Lord. This was, as they, as they approached Capernaum, they've probably all, uh, they're, they're, they've probably entered Capernaum. They've probably entered the house thinking in their own minds that they've, they have, have an airtight argument for why they are the best, why they are the greatest. All the others are wrong. And they enter the house, sure, assured that this is not going to, this is going to be the last thing Jesus is going to bring up. And Jesus pops the question, so uh, what were you guys talking about? That's a little bit of comical irony there, isn't it? Where moments ago for hours, for hours, where pride and an inflamed ego had kept their mouths going, and it kept their mouths open during the whole trek conviction and shame now slam their mouths shut again all the all the air has just been sucked out of the room you it was so quiet you could hear an angel's feather drop it is quiet one one man says Faced with the question posed by the one prepared to surrender himself to the lowliness and obscurity of the cross, they whose thoughts were on their own status and their own prestige have nothing to say. A painful impasse, wouldn't she say? Well, Jesus responds to this, as he intended to, with some instruction, with some poignant instruction. Verse. Thirty-five. He sits down. He's, he's assuming the recognized posture of a teacher. This is what he did on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he climbed the mountain. He sat down. This is what rabbis and teachers did. And so they recognize, especially as he's summoning the 12 over to them, there's a formal call. He recognizes that it's, they recognize it's teaching time. They've really stepped in it. And they need to be corrected. I mean, wouldn't you say this behavior deserves to be corrected? Don't you think that they deserve a rebuking? Now, notice, I want you to notice, beloved, that Jesus doesn't rebuke. When you look at verse 35, Jesus does not rebuke the desire to be first. Does that surprise anybody? Jesus does not rebuke, He doesn't correct. He doesn't say that it is wrong to desire to be first. To aspire to greatness, to to want to excel, to want to do well, to want to be honored and to be respected in itself isn't a bad thing. What, what's the bad thing, what's the error, is, is, is in the how and the why one aspires to be a great. That's where the problem is. There's no honor, there's no glory in desiring to come in last place in the race. There's no honor, there's no glory in not finishing your homework and getting an F. 1 Corinthians 10:31 says, "Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God." In other words, whatever you do, do things well. Do things the best. I believe with all my heart that God has gifted each one of us with specific gifts. And God is glorified, and we are edified when we are all putting our God-given gifts into practice. And I am gifted with things that you aren't gifted with. You're gifted things that I'm not gifted with. I can't do some of the things you guys can do well. Eric Liddell, a famous runner, said this concerning his spiritual, his gift to run. He says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. So the desire to be first, the desire to be great, the desire to do well isn't itself bad and wrong. It's how and why one aspires to be great. It's what what is one willing to do. Is one willing to sin to get what he wants? Lamar Williamson said this, Jesus doesn't despise the desire to be first, but his definition of greatness stands the world's ordering of priorities on its head and radically challenges a fundamental assumption. Now, what what is the world's ordering of priorities? What, What do you imagine has shaped the 12's understanding of what it means to be great and how we should be great? Now, I would present... That there are three main influences that we can find. One would be the Romans, the natural worldly rulers and the overlords that the, that the 12 would have had. Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. So, According to the world standards, that looking at the example of worldly leaders, greatness equals dominance. You want to be great? You want to be honored? Make people honor you. Make people serve you. Make people submit to you. That's what makes one great. In response to that, Jesus says in twenty-six, verse 26, it's not to be this way among you, speaking to the 12, speaking to what leadership in the church should look like, but whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. I say that here because that will be a reoccurring theme wherever Jesus brings this up. So you have the Romans. You have, you have worldly leaders who dominate, who, who take what they want through sh- sheer force, through brute force. Then you have the Jews these are the spiritual leaders. These are the, the spiritual examples of what was supposed to be hum, humility and greatness to the 12. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's why they do it. So, that, so when you give to the poor, verse 2, Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. One of the reasons we have that offering box in the back is so that people can can subtly give, discreetly give their offerings and their support to the church. Could you imagine what would it be if if someone were to you know, hey I, Daniel, I know you have a trumpet. Can you imagine if Daniel were to go, and then behold, my offering. It's precisely what we are not to do. Verse five. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Verse 16, With skipping forward a bit. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men. And then later on in Matthew twenty-three and five, he says, "They speaking of the Pharisees." This is right before the woes. Jesus says, "They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they they broaden their phylacteries." That, you know, when when God said to write the word of of the the word on your hearts, what they did is that they took this literally. They would take little uh, pieces of script and they would write scripture and they would hang it on their on their hats or on their tassels. That, that's called a phylactery. Some of you, uh, if you've ever visited uh, uh, a Jewish home, you, you might see a little wooden box on a, on, in the door frame. That's a, that's a modern phylactery. I'm not sure if they call it something else. Exactly. Same idea. But they would, bra- they would have like a, uh, the, 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 the banner that an airplane would drag behind it. They would take something like that, a little bit of a hyperbole, but they would take a, a big piece of cloth, a big piece of canvas, and ride it and hang it on their hat. So look at how holy I am. Look at this massive verse I have hanging from my noggin. They, and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. T- that tassel was a, was a piece of Jewish clothing that identified them as Jews. How Jewish am I? Look at my tassel. It's huge. And they love the place of honor at banquets, at banquets and the chief seats at the synagogues. And respectful greetings in the marketplace. Oh, and they love being called rabbi by men. Matthew would, or Jesus would go on to say in verse 11 of Matthew 23, but the greatest among you shall not do those things. He shall be your servant. So the Jews had this influence from the worldly leaders. They had this influence of self-exaltation. If you, can't get, if you can't get honor and power by taking it from people, do it through pretense. Make them think that you're great. And if that wasn't enough, their own flesh promotes this, this theme of self-exaltation. What, you know what the, what the greatest commandment is? It's two commandments, squished into one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as as yourself. Do you see how that verse assumes that we already love ourselves? We already think we are hanky-dory. We already think that we're great. and And it's natural for us to do whatever we want to try to get what we want. Think about this. Do you, ever, do you have to train kids to be mean to each other? Do you have to train kids to steal from each other, to gossip, to slander, to push others down so that we can lift ourselves up? That is at the heart of why, not just kids, that's why we are mean to each other. Isn't that what James says in James 4? Why do you wage war with each other? It's because you want things and you can't have them. It's natural for us to try to be great. And if it means putting down others underneath our boots, well, so be it. That's the world's way to greatness. Become number one. Obtain honor through brute force or through hypocritical pretense. Make others serve you. Get others to honor you. That's the world's way. What's God's way? What is God's way to greatness? Is it it through exalting yourself? It's through humbling yourself. God says the path to greatness, the path to excel, is through lowliness. The path to greatness is through lowliness, and it's achieved through serving, through service. Greatness in his kingdom is not determined by your status, by your strength. Greatness in, your, in the kingdom isn't derived by the skills and the talents that you have, and it's derived by servanthood. D.L. Moody said that the measure of a man is not the number of men who serve him. it's the number of men he serves. And this word for servant here, he says, he who, if anyone, and notice, he says, if anyone, this is open to any who are willing to take this and run with it. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, and he will be what? A servant. This is not the normal word for servant. The word that we normally see in the scripture for servant is the word that's also used for slave. Doulos. And that points to somebody who has the status of a slave. They have to do what they're told because of what they are. They're a slave. This word where Jesus says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. This is the word for a deacon. And the word has the idea not so much of your social status. It's what do you do? What are you? You doing it points not to the status of what you are, it, it points to the service that you're doing, the aid that you're giving, the service that you are rendering. True humility isn't self depriation it's an attitude of unselfishness and self forgetfulness that bears its fruit in seeking the welfare and seeking to f- meet the aids and the needs of others. It's not just enough that we think lowly of ourselves, that lowliness needs to do something. It needs to bear fruit in actually meeting the needs and bearing the burdens of others. Paul Paul touches on this. The clearest picture you have of this is in Philippians 2 where he says and I'll paraphrase the first part. He says rather than be rather than do anything in conceit. Rather than do anything in selfishness, he says, humbly regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then he says, do not merely look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. And then he says this, and this is an incredible link. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in So what he has just told us to do, to have a a sense of lowliness about ourselves, to not just look to our own interests, but to to make it a point to look to the interests of others, to serve their needs. Their needs are more important than our needs. That attitude was possessed by who first? Made evident by him doing what? Yeah, and there's that great condescending ladder. He had equality with God. He, was, he had the substance of God, infinite, eternally existing glory, joy, and love between Father, Son, and Spirit. He had everything he needed in heaven. He didn't need anything. He didn't need me. He didn't need you. He didn't need to create the world. He had everything. And he doesn't consider that all that goodness that he has something that he needs to clutch onto. That's the word. He didn't consider it robbery. I have been told that you can catch a monkey by putting a banana or a cookie in some kind of a jar where the monkey can reach in and grab it. And uh, if the opening is small enough that he can't pull the thing out, you can actually walk up and grab the monkey. Uh, the last time I was in the rainforest, I didn't try this out, so forgive me. But that's a great picture of what, considering something robbery is, you can't let it go. You, you ever, you ever, have uh, you, you ever known someone who has like a favorite dessert? And if they have it on their counter, if you were to walk over and you know kind of look at it, you, did you ever see someone get like naturally defensive, like, "Hey, what are you doing?" They're considering that cookie robbery. Jesus willingly let that go. He willingly set it aside. He, took, he who deserved all honor, praise, and worship took upon the form of a bond servant. And then and the, and the condescension came. He came in the form of a man, and not just a man, a servant and died, and not just any death, death of a cross. That's the attitude, I mean, that is the epitome of lowliness. You can't get any more lowly than the creator condescending himself, bringing himself down to the level of the creation. God taking upon human nature to pay the price we couldn't pay. I, I hope, you know, we're already... a almost a week past Christmas, I hope the wonder of the incarnation hasn't already faded from our minds. Have this attitude which was in Christ. D. Edmund Hebert says that humility and service, they're not only the passport to greatness in Christ's kingdom, they are the essence of greatness in his kingdom. Humility and service is what it means to be a Christian what does Jesus say they will know you by your by your love for one another and yeah and, that, and well you will know them by their fruits they will know you by your love for one another notice Jesus says that greatness requires one to be last to be to be a servant to what extent what's that word that he uses in both of those short phrases verse 30 35 if anyone wants to be first he shall be last of all and servant of all now I struggled to, to be honest with you I struggled with this word a little bit because usually I when I read the word all I think all, well all means all but it, let me remind you that the context is based on the disciples having inter-rivalry. And the, the dispute, the contention, this, this competition, the disciples are having one another. That is, that is what spurns Jesus' teaching here. So it's not, it's not them mistreating those out in the world. It's them mistreating one another. It's them clamoring to push. see how far they can be pushing each other down to lift themselves up up. In Matthew's parallel in Matthew 18, 6, he gives a stern warning. It's a a continuation of this teaching. He gives a stern warning in chapter 18, verse 6. The warning is given to those who cause other believers, other young believers to stumble. And that's where he says it's better if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. It's better if a millstone is hung around your neck. So I think the context that he's giving is our relationship, our behavior, our conduct towards one another within the body of Christ. So while the the scripture tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, the scripture tells us to have an excellent conduct and behavior among those who are on the outside, I think the specific command here appear, is primarily humble yourself before the body of Christ. Humble yourself primarily before one another. And and that we need to be putting on our spiritual apron. That That is the uniform of the Christian. A servant's apron. Humble ourselves and put on our apron and serve the needs of every single believer in Christ. No matter how great they are. No matter how impressive they are. No matter how unimpressive they are. From the least to the greatest. All of them. Serve God them. To drive this home, Jesus gives a practical illustration. All teachers know that illustrations are great. Right, Daniel? Yeah. Illustrations are great. And he gives one in verses 36 and 37. And taking a child, he set him before them. This paradoxical paradoxical statement, the the first shall be last, is immediately attached to a visual help. Jesus takes this child and again, if this is Peter's house, which I think it was, this could be Peter's son that Jesus is putting before the twelve. He says, you want to be great? You want to be first? You need to look at the lowly people. You need to look at the least of people, at the unimpressive people people as more important than yourselves, you, you big men of manly virtue, you paragons of righteousness. So that's a little bit of facetiousness si- sipping out. Think even of lowly children. who The children can't even keep themselves kosher. They can't keep themselves ceremonially clean. They're always getting dirty. They're noisy. They're needy. They're needy. They're annoying. I mean, not me when I was a kid. Obviously not. But think of them higher in rank. Think of them as higher in stature. Think of their needs. Their needs to be appreciated. Their needs to be loved. Their needs to be instructed and trained and admonished. The, and, and, and the practical needs they have. The, the needs to be fed and clothed and changed and clean and taught and loved. Think of their needs as more important than your needs. Oh, you great men. Here was one, when he set this child before them, here was one who had absolutely no claim to self-exaltation. He had no claim to self-importance. He had no claim to self-worth. You see, the ancient world wasn't a child-centric world that like we live in. There, there weren't entire industries. There weren't billions and billions and billions of dollars that followed the whims of children. You, you realize we have industries. We have even even political policies are made because of what's in favor right now and how it will make children feel. We have romanticized children as symbols of purity and innocence, but in the old world, children were unable to keep the law. They were constantly uh, becoming unclean. Today we have billions and billions of dollars. We have millions of man hours being spent to give children a a sense of entitlement. That did not happen in the old world, in the ancient world. I mean, that didn't even happen as, as, as recent as, I think, 150 years ago when in the Industrial Revolution you'd have kids climbing into machines working for half Half the rate of a man. In the old world, children had to prove themselves to be as worth. They weren't seen as people until they could do this. The rabbis even considered it a waste of time to teach Torah to a child until he was at least 12 years old. They're a kid. Why bother? He has needs. Oh, he's a kid. Why bother? So when Jesus presents this child before these grown men, he now remember, there, there's 12. They're, they're seated around him. He takes this child and, and he's taking him in his arms. So he's standing right where Jesus is. He is before the 12. There's not a single disciple who can't clearly see this object lesson. There's no disciple who's going to be, you know, I was facing the other way that time. I, I didn't see what Jesus was talking about. They, could, they, they all see clearly what Jesus is doing. And he puts this small child before these proud, ego inflamed men. Someone who could never bicker and complain and argue about how great he is. The boy knew he was lowly. Everybody knew he was lowly. So Jesus says, you want to be great? You men, you want to be first? Humble yourselves. Think lowly. Think yourself lowly and others as great, even one such as this boy, this small child. Serve him. Meet his needs. And I can't help but, again, bring your attention to the fact that Jesus is taking this, this poor boy, this lowly boy, he takes him in his arms. You see, can you see the picture of Jesus embracing this child, showing him tenderness, showing him affection? When probably beyond his parents, he probably didn't get any from society. Jesus says to receive them. Receive such a one. You see that in verse 37? Whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. This receive, it speaks of a of a warm reception. It, it speaks of of a, of a warm welcome, a favorable welcome, to, to greet somebody, to welcome them in with heartfelt sincerity. You ever have someone, maybe a neighbor, maybe, ooh, a, a, a door-to-door, like those people selling, uh, hey, uh, do you need you work on your roof? Do you, do you guys get those? People saying uh, that they want to, uh, they can give you an estimate on your roof. I get those about every four weeks. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, I haven't gotten those roof people. So it's not the idea of being inconvenienced by people. You, do, you, do you not feel inconvenienced when a salesperson shows up at your door? Don't you just want more than anything? Don't, don't we start praying, Lord, please remove this person from me. Drive this person far from me. That that, that attitude of being inconvenienced, of being obligated, of, uh, you know, If you're going to do anything well for them, it's because you have a duty to do so. It's it's, it's expected. That's not what Jesus is saying. You receive them. It's it's a sincere, it's an affectionate, it's a heartfelt, willing reception. He says, anybody who receives, whoever receives one child like this, he's, he's like the way he is embracing this child with with affection with no idea of what he's going to get back isn't that a, a reason why we often do nice things for people is so that they can return the favor jesus is embracing this boy who probably hasn't done anything to bless him he's a young, this is a word for a young child anywhere from 2 to maybe 5 young child whoever receives one child like this in my name doesn't just receive him. Who do they receive? Who? Right, Jesus. The, in the Greek, it's it's emphatic. Whoever receives a child like this in my name, me he receives. It's emphatic. You do this for a child. You do this for Christ. Jesus regards that the act of affection, the the warm embrace, the appreciation, the service, the acceptance, the love. He, Jesus considers the act done unto himself turn over to Matthew 25 don't flip too far you'll go into the Old Testament Matthew 25 look at verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the nations are gathered before him he look at verse 34 He will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed. Look at uh, verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison. You came to me. And the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we do these things? When did we feed you? When were you thirsty? When, When did we give you something to drink? Look down at... The punchline is at verse 40. The king. I mean, if there's anyone to be benevolent to, if there's anyone who, to whom you should give a warm reception to, it's the king. The king will answer and say to them Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, who'd, who'd you do it unto? Unto me. Same thing for the, for the other way around. Look at, look at uh, 45. To those who did not serve and meet the needs of the lowly. Then he will answer them and say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of these, you finish it. You did not do it to me. And then he even ups the ante. If, you're, if, your, if your finger is still in Mark 9, look at, look at how he concludes verse 37. Whoever receives me doesn't, does not receive me. The idea is does not receive just me or doesn't receive only me, but who else? And who's that? Father. Father. that 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 ups the ante doesn't a little doesn't it a little bit let me conclude with with some practical application the the so what's first so what that the Lord doesn't have any use for proud men. Selfish ambition and the love for preeminence, these things have no place in disciple in the hearts and minds of disciples of Jesus. Jesus wasn't like that way, wasn't that way. Those who follow him and are imitating him and learn to be like him shouldn't be that way. The truth is, is that the pride and and the love to be recognized, the love to be honored, the love to 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 have glory doesn't help our Christian walk. It'll only hinder and derail it. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit. Yeah, You have to pronounce it that way, otherwise it doesn't sound right. A haughty spirit, a proud spirit, an arrogant spirit goes before a great fall. Humble yourselves, beloved. Let me exhort you. Humble yourselves before the Lord does it for you. The Lord has no use for proud men. Secondly, the path to true greatness, and this is is true greatness, not not, uh, a pretentious greatness, not an external greatness, not a temporary greatness, not a worldly greatness. True greatness is not through exaltation. It is through lowliness. The path to greatness is through lowliness, and it is achieved, it is exercised, it is obtained through humble servitude. I, I, I must ask, are there people that God has placed in your life whom you can respond to in this way? Are there people in your life, maybe within your immediate family, maybe your neighbors, maybe your coworkers, are there needs that the Lord has brought to your attention that thus far you have been neglecting? Is there anyone that God has placed in your life and has Perhaps the Spirit is now pricking your conscience right now. Is there somebody whom you can start serving? Is there someone whose burdens you can start carrying? Is there somebody that you can become a blessing to? One way that we strive to exercise this as a church body is through our benevolence ministry. I need to be much better at remind at um, advertising this on the third. Sunday, but we regularly collect an offering, and the proceeds from that offering go stri- straight, directly into the church, being ready and equipped and prepared to give to meet needs of of people in the church and upon discretion outside the church. Galatians six two says to carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, fight your pride, for the Lord has no use for proud people. The path to true greatness is through lowliness. And third, I want you to see that the Lord intimately and affectionately cares for all of his own. In in Matthew's account, this isn't really clear in in Mark's passage, in Matthew's account, it would seem to indicate this boy had faith. He says, Woe to those who cause even a a little one such as this who believe in me. I go back to that picture of, of Jesus holding that little boy who could do nothing for him. Jesus has an intimate and an affectionate care for all of his people from the least to the greatest. And it's a passage like this that reinforces my own conviction that I need to be patient with other people. I need to be forbearing with other people, even when they frustrate me, even when they aggravate me, even when they don't get it or they don't see things the way I do. This tells me to be loving and patient and long-suffering with the people that in my flesh I don't want to be, even them. Do you have anybody in your life like that? Are you married to somebody like that? Don't answer that. Let me just exhort you not to be impatient. Don't be harsh. Fight against being judgmental and critical with these, but rather respond with patience and love and service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you Lord, for being so patient with sinners like us. The number of times that we must frustrate you, that we must grieve the Spirit with our dullness, with our. with the propensity with which we return to our sin, with the frequency with which we return to our foolishness and the, slow, the slowness we have to put on Christ-likeness, the, sl- the slowness we have to, to do unto others as we would want to have done unto us. Lord, forgive us for that. and We thank you that you modeled and exemplified this trait for us. Help us to be like you. Amen.